The sermon text for today is Genesis 6, 1 through 8. And we will also read from Hebrews 11, verses 1 and 2, and verse 7. Genesis 6, 1 through 8, and Hebrews 11, 1 and 2, and verse 7. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 1, we read these words, When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, his days shall be one hundred and twenty years. Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Let us go now to Hebrews chapter 11 look at, and look at verses 1 and 2 and verse 7. Hebrews 11, 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So far the reading of God's most holy word. We pray that the Lord would bless the preaching of it now and its application to our lives today. I think the purpose of Genesis chapter 6 verses 1 through 8 is rather simple and straightforward. This passage sets the stage for the story of the flood and of Noah and his ark, which will be told in Genesis 6-9 through to the end of chapter 8. Why did God send the floodwaters upon the earth to destroy all flesh? Well, according to our text today, it was because man had grown exceedingly wicked. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continuously, we read. And why was Noah spared from the floodwaters? Why were he and his family saved in that ark, which was a type of the Christ who was to come? It was by God's grace. That is what we hear in this text. It was by God's grace. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, Genesis 6-8. The King James Version and New King James Version say, But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Uh, Genesis 6, 1 through 8 functions, therefore, as a preview or, or a trailer to the flood story, which will be told in greater detail in the next section. You have watched trailers to movies, haven't you? Uh, what do those trailers do? They provide a, a brief synopsis or preview of, of that movie. And, and that is what we have here in this passage, a, a kind of preview of the flood narrative which is to follow. And while it is true that the purpose of this text is simple, 
That is, to set the stage for the flood narrative which will follow and to communicate that grace was present and active within the world despite the increase of wickedness. A closer look at this text really does raise questions. For example, who are the sons of God and the daughters of man mentioned in verse 2? What does it mean that these sons of God took as their wives any they chose? And how is this related to God's displeasure? How are we to understand the words of God when He says, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, his day shall be 120 years. What does that mean? And who are these Nephilim mentioned in verse 4? And how are they related to the sons of God already mentioned and the increase of wickedness on the earth? What does the statement The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, reveal about the condition of fallen man. And how are we to understand what is said in verses 5-7, through that God was sorry He had made man, that He was grieved to the heart, and again, that He was sorry that He had made them. Is it even possible for God to regret His actions, to be sorry and to be grieved to the heart and What does it ultimately mean that Noah found favor with God? These are all very important questions. This text, in some respects, is very simple. It sets the stage for the flood narrative that follows, but really it is packed full of of, of difficult statements, things that raise questions in our minds. So, let us now move through this text a verse at a time and, and try to address these questions. I think through addressing these questions, this text will grow even more rich. Notice that in verse 1 we read, When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them. This statement is simple enough, isn't it? It it seems to take us back to the time spoken of in Genesis 4, and also again in Genesis 5, to look upon it from yet another perspective. In Genesis chapter 4, the expansion of of the human race was described to us, but with particular attention given to the wicked line of Cain. Do you remember that, brothers and sisters? The, the expansion of the human race is there described. Men began to multiply on the face of the earth, but there in Genesis 4, particular attention was given to the wicked line of Cain. In Genesis 5, the same thing happens. The expansion of the human race was described, but with special attention given to the righteous line of, of Seth. And in Genesis 6, we find yet another description of that period of time when man began to multiply on the face of the earth. But the focus is here somewhat different. Here in Genesis 6, we do not find a genealogy as we did in Genesis 4 and 5. But special attention is given to the wickedness that was increasing upon the earth in those days. Man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them. And in verse 2, we learn that the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Here, the, the wickedness that began to cover the earth and inundate the earth is being described to us in Genesis 1, 6, 1 through 8. Who are these sons of God and daughters of man? It's an interesting question. And there are really three main views. And I'd like to overview them for you uh, before presenting uh, the the view that, that I hold to. Who are the sons of God and the daughters of man? The first view might be called the angelic view. 
It's in fact a very old interpretation. Uh, And it takes the phrase, sons of God, as referring to rebellious angels. According to the angelic interpretation, uh, these were angels who were attracted to the daughters of man, that is to say, to women in general. And through carnal relations, these angels produced a special breed of human, perhaps the Nephilim, who are mentioned later on in verse 4. The The sinful and corrupt and wicked thing, according to this view, is that the angels did not keep their proper place, but intermingled with the human species. And perhaps man was also culpable in that they permitted such a thing to happen. So so what is wicked about the sons of God being attracted to the daughters of men and taking any they choose? Well, according to the angelic interpretation, it is that the, the angels did not keep their proper place, and neither did human beings, but they intermingled uh, with a different species. Ultimately, uh, the righteous seed, which was promised in Genesis 3.15, you remember that promise, I hope, uh, and that righteous seed, which was promised in Genesis 3.15 and preserved through Seth, as we were told in Genesis 5, was therefore threatened by this unholy and unnatural union, this intermingling of angels and men. What does this view have going for it? Uh, Well, it is true that angels are sometimes called sons of God in the Scriptures. See, for example, Job 1.6. Also, there does seem to be a contrast between the sons of God and the daughters of men in this passage. We we have to ask, what does this mean? The the sons of God and the daughters of men, uh, there there seems to be a contrast between the two in this passage. Uh, which which uh, suggests that they belong to a different class. And those who hold to the angelic view would argue that the sons of God and the daughters of men belong to a different species altogether, angelic and human. Finally, it should be recognized that it is common to find in ancient and pagan literature the belief that prior to the flood, the gods intermingled with humans, producing a special class or breed of men. And those who hold to the angelic interpretation would argue that the scriptures confirm this as true. What does this view have going against it? I would argue that it has a lot going against it. Uh, One, though it is true that the phrase sons of God might sometimes be used to refer to angels, the, the phrase is also used in the scriptures to refer to men. Sometimes the righteous are called sons of God. Sometimes kings are called sons of God. Adam was called the Son of God, if you remember. Uh, Two, everything in this passage seems to point to these sons of God as being of the human species. This entire section is about the multiplication of man on the face of the land. We are told that God was displeased not with rebellious angels, but with man. The Lord said, for example, in Genesis 6.3, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His day shall be 120 years. Uh, The question I would ask of those who hold to the angelic interpretation is, why is God so displeased with man, and why does He emphasize that man is flesh? He is not here displeased with angels, nor with some uh, unique species that has come about through the process of reproduction with angels and men, but He is displeased with man And he emphasizes, for he is flesh, his day shall be 120 years. The Nephilim, who seem to be the result of these unholy unions, are also described as being men 
and not some hybrid angel-human species. Uh, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them, these were the mighty ones who were of old, the men of renown, Genesis 6-4 tells us. So whoever these Nephilim are, the scriptures say that they are mighty men. They are men. Three, Nothing in the rest of Scripture would indicate that angels would be tempted or have sec- the, the, the capacity to engage in sexual relations with the human species. And in fact, the Scriptures explicitly teach that angels do not marry and neither do they reproduce, not even amongst themselves. Christ, when dealing with the question of marriage and eternity, I, I don't know if you remember this passage, but he actually says that for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Uh, Christ teaches that when it comes to the issue of marriage, we will be like the angels in heaven, that is, neither marrying nor giving, being given in marriage. And yet here this passage is dealing with unholy unions, marriage relationships, um, As Christians, we do believe in the supernatural and the miraculous, don't we? And so I do not think it is enough to say this view is just too strange to be true, though I do think the strangeness of it should cause us to question it. Ultimately, I reject this view because it does not seem to square with this passage nor with other passages of Scripture. And as we will see, I think there is another view which fits far better with the narrative of Genesis and with the rest of Holy Scripture. So the first interpretation is the angelic interpretation. A second interpretation is called the Sethite view. Uh, This view has actually held a lot of popularity, I think at least from the time of the Reformation onward, uh, certainly in in modern times. Uh, This view takes the phrase sons of God as a reference to the descendants of righteous Seth. And the phrase, daughters of man, as a reference to the women who belong to the line of unrighteous Cain. You understand this view, therefore. Uh, It recognizes that there is some distinction between the sons of God and the daughters of men. Uh, They belong to to a different class, and, and what classes do they belong to, therefore? Well, the sons of God belong to the righteous line of Seth, whereas the daughters of men, or man, belong to the unrighteous line of Cain. Uh, the sinful, corrupt, and wicked thing, according to this view, is that the righteous intermingled with the unrighteous, being led, being led astray by their carnal passions. What does this view have going for it? One, the phrase sons of God is sometimes used to refer to God's people, that is to say, the righteous ones in the world. And two, this is indeed a theme that we see in the rest of Holy Scripture. God's people are often tempted by the world, the things of the world and the sensual pleasures found therein. And under the Old Covenant, Israel's kings were warned about taking foreign wives to themselves, lest they be tempted to also take their gods and thus commit idolatry. So this is a theme. Solomon fell in this regard, didn't he? He did not... Uh, remain pure, but he took foreign wives who worshipped foreign gods uh, to himself. And even under the New Covenant, we are warned against being unequally yoked. And so there is this theme in Scripture, uh, beware of the world, beware of the sensuality of the world, do not run after it, and certainly do not be yoked to it. Uh, What does this view have going against it, though? I think a careful consideration of Genesis 6, 1-8 reveals that these sons of God as they are called, have much more in common with Cain 
and the unrighteous line which proceeds from him than with Seth and the righteous line that came from him. And so I do not hold to the Sethite interpretation either. A third interpretation is called the royal interpretation. And this is the one that I believe is correct. Uh, The royal view takes the phrase sons of God as a reference to powerful, wicked, and tyrannical kings associated with the unrighteous line of Cain and also with King Lemek, who was introduced to us back in Genesis 4.18. Why would kings, wicked kings, be called sons of God? Uh, That is the question that we have to answer. And actually, I think the answer is simple. This is what these kings claimed to be. And this is what the peoples of the earth considered them to be. They considered these kings, these powerful and, and mighty and tyrannical kings, to be the sons of God, uh, the, the, the product of, of the divine, uh, a special class of, of human. As I stated before, ancient and pagan literature reveals that this was a widespread belief prior to the flood, that kings were in some way divine, you see. They called themselves and were also called sons of God or sons of the gods, which is a possible translation of the Hebrew here. Uh, some of the Roman emperors claimed to be divine, as you know. Before that, the Egyptian pharaohs claimed to be descendants of the gods. And we know through ancient literature that kings who lived prior to the flood also made this claim. They considered themselves and were considered to be divine. And so there is a kind of irony present within this text. The thing which proves that these kings were not divine was their fleshly and insatiable appetite for the daughters of men. If they were indeed divine, then why do they have such a a desire to... To, to, to have women in their, their harems, uh, that they were men is proven by the fact that they were driven by carnal passions. They were driven by the passions of mere men. They saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they choose, we are told. That these kings who claimed to be divine were associated with unright- the unrighteous line of Cain and not the righteous line of Seth should be plain enough Notice that the, the, the terminology of Genesis 6.1 matches the terminology of Genesis 4.14. In 6.1 we read, When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them. And in 4.14 we encounter Cain's complaint against God. Remember Cain, having been judged by God, he begins to complain about the harshness of his judgment. And what does he say? Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. This is a theme that is developing in the book of Genesis, uh, this language of belonging to the face of the land and and belonging to the earth. These kings, these sons of God so-called, belong to the world, belong to the earth. They are earthly, sinful kings. Cain was earthly, that is worldly, and so too were these tyrant kings. Notice also the similarity between these sons of God and Lamech, who was introduced to us back in Genesis 4.18. In Genesis 4.18 we read Methuselah, uh, Methushael, rather, fathered Lamech, and Lamech took two wives. 
And in 4.23 we read, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zilhah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. You remember that passage, we've already considered it. But Lamech transgressed God's design for marriage and he took multiple wives. Here is the first instance of that that we see in the pages of Holy Scripture. And more than that, he began to rule like a tyrant. Instead of promoting justice, he oppressed his subjects and practiced injustice. He put a young man to death merely for wounding him. This was not just. It was not an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but rather it was overly harsh punishment for the crime. And these so-called sons of God were rulers in the line of Cain and Lamech. They took the sins of Lamech and multiplied them greatly. Not only did they take two wives, as Lamech did, but they took as many as they desired. And notice also that this theme, uh, those in the wicked line of Cain were obsessed not with giving glory to God, but with promoting their own name. That's what we learn from the genealogy of Cain. Cain was obsessed with promoting not the glory of God, but his own name. He built a city, remember, I think he was a king, he built a city, and after he, he built the city, what did he call it? Did he call it Yahweh as Lord? Did he call it God's city? Did he build that city to the glory of God? No, he, he named the city after his son, Enoch. The line of Cain is portrayed as having an insatiable appetite for glorifying themselves. They are living for their own glory. And what do we see here in Genesis 6-1 and following, except that wickedness taken to the extreme, these men who proved that they were only men by their desire and for an ability to procreate with, with women, they took to themselves the title of God and demanded worship, no doubt. So not only did they commit the sin of Lamech, who, or the, the, the sin of uh, Cain, who built a city and named it after his son Enoch, but here these, these kings are actually claiming to be divine. They're claiming to be God, and they are no doubt demanding reverence and worship. Uh, this text also implies that these so-called sons of God repeated and amplified the original sin of Adam and Eve when we compare Genesis 6-2 with Genesis 3-6. Remember what the scriptures say about Adam and Eve's sin. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And so too these sons of God transgressed the law of God when they saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. They are repeating and amplifying the sin of Adam and Eve. These powerful warrior kings ruled in a tyrannical manner. They took any woman that they desired into their harems, and these women bore children to them. Can you imagine what it would be like to live in a world like that, that is dominated by this kind of wickedness, with tyrants ruling and reigning, who see an attractive woman, no matter if she belongs to another man or not, and they just take her? This is the world prior to the flood. This was the thing that God was displeased about. It was not justice that was promoted, but injustice 
These kings were ruling not as they should, but they were ruling as tyrants. And I think this is a part of the reason they are called sons of God. There is a sense in which kings should be called sons of God and are called sons of God in the pages of Holy Scripture. They are called sons of God because kings in particular are to represent God on earth and they are to promote His law and they are to promote justice. They have that, that authority. Uh, the kings of Israel were mixed, were they not? Some were righteous and some were wicked. Uh, these were kings, and in that sense they were sons of God, but they had twisted, they had twisted um, all that it means to be truly a king, and they had used their power in a tyrannical manner. In verse 3 we read, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, his days shall be 120 years. And there are two possible ways to interpret this statement, actually. Uh, one, 120 years could be understood as the length of time that would pass between the issuing of this decree and the flood. In other words, this statement from God indicates that 120 years would pass and then He would come in judgment to cut these men off. The wickedness of the earth had grown so exceedingly great, God is saying, you have 120 years left and then judgment will come. That is one possible interpretation. Two, 120 years could be understood as the eventual limit of the lifespan of man. Men prior to the flood we learned live for hundreds of years. But men after the flood would not live for more than 120 years. This was God's judgment upon man due to the increase of wickedness on the earth. And this seems to me to be the very best interpretation. Now, those who reject this interpretation argue, argue against it by pointing out that some who lived after the flood lived for more than 120 years. For example, Abraham lived to the age of 175 Isaac to 180, and Jacob to 147. Other examples could be given. But in defense of this view, I say, is it not possible that this limitation of the lifespan of man to 120 years was instituted progressively? Men and women progressively live shorter and shorter lives until 120 years came to be the limit as it is today. There was something significant about the flood. The lifespan of man decreased dramatically after the flood covered the earth, but there were some exceptions. But progressively, uh, 120 years came to be the limit of a human life. This limitation of the lifespan of man seems to be a fitting consequence to the increase of the wickedness that has been described to us in this passage. It's not hard to imagine that these tyrant kings grew exceedingly powerful, in part because they lived such long lives. They were able to establish and expand their, their kingdoms, their dynasties, over a period of hundreds of years. Today, one of the things that limits despotic rulers from having more power than they, do might, than they might otherwise have is death. They make progress in establishing their kingdoms, but then they die. Therefore, their sin and their abusive regimes are, are in some way limited. I think there is a reason why God uh, shortened the lifespan of man here. That is to, 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 to restrict the increase of wick wickedness upon the earth. 
In verse 4, we read, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So who are these Nephilim? I told you this passage seems very simple when you first read it, but upon closer examination, there are lots of interesting and difficult questions. Who are these Nephilim? The word Nephilim means giants. These Nephilim were the children of the sons of God already mentioned, who had joined themselves to the daughters of man. They are here called the mighty men who were of old. The Nephilim are. They were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now it is not difficult to imagine that these despotic kings were themselves large and powerful warriors. Can you picture it? And that they produced large and powerful warriors through their carefully selected harems. And in a time when battles were fought face to face and hand to hand, isn't it reasonable to assume that these kings and their kingdoms grew stronger and stronger as they produced more and more of these Nephilim, that is to say, giant warriors, mighty men, men of renown. Here they have the advantage on the battlefield for sure, for they have physical strength. They are powerful figures, and they are promoting these tyrannical and evil and wicked kingdoms. The only other time the word Nephilim appears in the Scriptures is in Numbers 13. And it's that story where Israel sends out spies to scout out the land of Canaan. Do you remember it? They returned, we learn, saying, we are not able to go up against the people. So they returned trembling, saying, we, we, cannot, we cannot go in, we cannot enter in. Um, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land and that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Onik, which is also another uh, name associated with, with giants, who came from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seem to them, Numbers 13, 31 through 33. Uh, remember, only Caleb and Joshua had the faith to conquer the land. Only they said, God is with us and He will give us the victory. Let's go up. The rest turned back for fear of the giants who were in the land. And though it is true that the word Nephilim only appears in Genesis 6 and in Numbers 13, the theme of giant warriors and the threat that they pose to the people of God, to the kingdom of God, and to the promises of God runs throughout Scripture, doesn't it? For the sake of time, I'll simply remind you of that most famous story, the story of David and Goliath. And I will also remind you of the story of King Saul and David, which follows on its heels. I, I do not think that Saul was a giant, technically speaking, but why, why did the people want Saul as king? Why did they want Saul as king? They wanted a king like all the other nations had. And what was characteristic of Saul? Was he a man of God? No. But he was big. He was taller than everyone else. He, he stood out in the crowd. You look upon the crowd and here are all these average men and yet Saul is the tallest of them all. He's a large, powerful warrior. And so we want to have him as king. Who did God select though? A little shepherd boy named David. 
And how did David come to be king? How did he come to prominence? Well, by the decree of God, of course. But he went out and he faced that giant, that Nephilim, if we might use the terminology, Goliath, who was a threat to God, to the people of God, to the promises of God, you see. And he went out and he fought that battle and he, he, he conquered the giant. And so, it is important that we see that this theme is beginning to develop as early as Genesis chapter 6, that there is the kingdom of God and there is the kingdom of man. There is the kingdom of God and there is the kingdoms of this world. Uh, the one advances through political and military might by the strength of man and according to the wisdom of man, but God is going to keep His word. He is going to establish His kingdom even in those days as these tyrants began to rule on earth and they took as many wives as they wanted to themselves and as the Nephilim were produced, the, the mighty men of old, God looks upon that and He sees the threat upon His promise. Genesis 3.15, I'm going to provide a Savior through the seed of the woman and He brings judgment upon these, these mighty tyrannical kings. God's kingdom will be established not by political and military might, not by the strength and wisdom of man, but by God's faithfulness to His promises and by God's power. God's kingdom is established not by might, not by power, but by His Spirit, says the Lord of hosts, Zechariah 4.6. The stories of David and Goliath and David and Saul clearly communicate these truths, but see that these truths are established here in the earliest chapters of Genesis. Though the kingdoms of man began to multiply on the face of the earth by the rule of these tyrannical and mighty warrior kings, God was sovereign still. And though the righteous line of Seth and the promised seed of the woman who would come through his loins was certainly threatened by these tyrants and by the speed, the spread of, of wickedness upon the earth, God would establish His kingdom he would preserve a people for Himself, for He is faithful to His covenant. That is what we are seeing here in Genesis chapter 6, verses 1-8. through 8. In verse 5 we read that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of His heart was only evil continually. God sees the intentions and the thoughts of our hearts, friends. And though it may be true that man had grown exceedingly wicked in the days prior to the flood, the same may be said of fallen and sinful man even today. For what did the Apostle Paul say concerning the condition of man? What then? Are we Jews any better off? He asks. No, not at all, for we have, all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. And it is written, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one, their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And so the testimony of Scripture from beginning to end is that man that is fallen, sinful, and unregenerate man is corrupt to the core. Here we have this statement, the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continuously. And it seems to me that the Apostle applies that same principle even to New Covenant 
uh, Christians and to the world as it is today, that, that here is our condition apart from Christ, apart from the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. We are corrupt to the core. I was listening to talk radio the other day, and one of the hosts, uh, he being of the liberal variety, uh, told a story of, about words that his father had spoken to him when he was a child. He remembered distinctly his father's saying to him and said it, it shaped his whole life. He said, son, don't ever, ever, ever lose faith in the fundamental goodness of man. Those words had shaped his life, he said. And I thought to myself, those words sound so very nice and good. And there truly is a part of me that wishes I could believe them, but I simply cannot. When I look at the world around me, I do not see good, but I see sin and evil. And when I look to the pages of Holy Scripture, here is what I read. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continuously. If I were to give advice to my sons and daughters, it would be this. Sons and daughters don't ever, ever, ever lose faith in God, who alone is good, and His ability to redeem and restore sinners such as you and me through Christ Jesus our Lord. I think that is sound advice. Friends, our God is able to make bad men good. Our God is able to shine light in the darkness, to bring life from death. But when fallen men and women are left to themselves, they are not good, but are dead in their trespasses and sins. This is the clear teaching of Scripture, and this is what we see in the world around us. Here in verse 6 we read, And the Lord regretted that He had made man on the earth, and it grieved Him to His heart. And at the end of verse 7, something similar is communicated. There, God Himself is heard saying, For I am sorry that I have made them. I think the meaning of these statements is simple enough. Uh, God was terribly displeased with the wickedness of man. And the language of human emotion and experience is used to communicate this truth to us. You and I know what it is to regret something, don't we? You and I know what it is to regret something, to be grieved to the heart and to be sorry concerning something we have done. We have all experienced that, that emotion. God's deep displeasure with the wickedness of man is communicated to us through the language of human emotion and experience. Of course, we, we know that God cannot, in actuality, experience regret. God cannot, in actuality, be grieved to the heart or be sorry uh, for God to actually be sorry would mean that He erred. For Him to actually regret would indicate a change with, within God. He was heading in this direction, now He must turn about and head in another direction. He thought this would be good, but has since changed His mind. And for God to be grieved to the heart would require God to have a heart, so-called, which He does not have. Men have hearts. Men are composed of parts, body and soul, mind and heart. God is simple. He is not made up of parts. He is the most pure spirit. All that is in God is God. Other scripture texts actually support what I have just said, that God cannot actually regret, be grieved to the heart, or be sorry. Listen, for example, to Numbers 23.19. Uh, keep in mind that the book of Numbers was written by the same man who wrote the book of Genesis. So, 
Uh, the same man who wrote the words that God was sorry and that he was grieved to the heart and regretted also wrote these words, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. He has said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fill it, fulfill it? So here is Moses saying, don't be confused here, folks. God is not a man. He is fundamentally different, and he does not change his mind. In 1 Samuel 15.29, we read, The glory of Israel, speaking of God, will not lie or have regret. It's a very clear statement. The God of Israel, the glory of Israel, will not lie or have regret, for He is not a man that He should have regret. It's not proper to speak of God as if He had regret actually within Himself. In Malachi 3.6, we read, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O children of Jacob, you are not consumed. You and I change. You and I have regrets, are grieved, and know what it is to be sorry. God does not experience these, experience these things actually. Here in Genesis 6.6, 6, and also in other places, the language of human emotion and experience is applied to God so that we might understand something true about Him. Something similar happens when the Scriptures attribute body parts to God. You're familiar with those passages, aren't you? The scriptures will sometimes refer to the face of God, to the hand of God, to the arm of God, etc., etc. And yet these same scriptures are clear that God is in actuality spirit and, not, and is not made up of any of those things. Body parts are being applied to God so that we might learn something true about Him, though we know that He does not actually have a face or an arm or a back. And so how then are we to understand these passages that speak of God anthropopathically, that is with the language of human emotion, or anthropomorphically, that is with the, human, the language of human physio physiology? Uh, the answer is by the way of negation. When we interpret these passages, we must strip away or negate all that is human and all that is not proper to God until the basic meaning of the passage is left. I, I think most people do this naturally. Here I've gone on this long tangent explaining uh, why, though the scriptures say God regretted, He does not actually regret. But I think most people do this naturally. They read it and understand that God is God and He is not man. What is being communicated to us here in Genesis 6, 6, when we strip away that which is human and not proper to God, well, it is this truth. God was terribly displeased with the wickedness of man in those days. And therefore, judgment was coming. Uh, something was going to change, not in God, but in terms of our experience. Uh, judgment was coming. He created man and He allowed man to flourish on earth. Even the increase of wickedness was allowed by Him. But something was about to change because of the true displeasure that God had concerning this wickedness. In verse 7, we read these ominous words, So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. So the stage has now been set for the story of the flood, which God would soon send upon the earth in those days. Uh, in the scriptures, the, the, the flood is viewed as a kind of prototype of the final judgment. 
God rendered the earth and covered the earth in water and judgment. But it was not the final judgment. He preserved some, as we will see. But at the end of time, God will judge fully and finally, and the earth will be covered with fire instead. And in verse 8, we read these words, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Finally, some good news. Finally, something happy something to rejoice about. Uh, with these words, the, set, the stage is set for the story of Noah and the ark. What does it mean that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord? The word translated favor might also be translated grace. And as I said before, this is how the King James Version and the New King, King James Version translate it. But, God, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. What we are learning here is that what is true today has always been true, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not the result of works, lest anyone should boast. What is the very first thing we hear about Noah? We hear that God showed him grace. After this, we will hear that he was a righteous man in his generation, that he walked upright before the Lord, that is all true. But the very first word we hear about Noah is that he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Wickedness is increasing. The sinfulness of man had spread throughout all the earth. But God was gracious still. He, by His grace, preserved a people for Himself. Noah, as we will learn, was righteous in his generation. Noah, like Enoch before him, that is the Enoch of the line of Seth, he walked with God, and this was by God's grace, ultimately. Brothers and sisters, how might we apply these truths? In many ways, but I will mention three possible applications. First of all, let us be sure to have a true and biblical view of man and his condition now that he has fallen. I do understand perfectly well the appeal of that view which supposes that men and women are fundamentally good. It really is a wonderful thought. But it has one thing against it, it's not true. Men and women are born in sin, the Scriptures teach, and even those who are regenerated and redeemed in Christ Jesus still struggle with sin. Our hope, therefore, cannot be in man, but must be in God. Our hope must be rooted in God and in the grace that He has shown to us in Christ Jesus. Not only should this cause you to run to Christ for the forgiveness of sins, but it should drive you to urge others to do the same. And notice how practical a proper and true doctrine of man is. It affects even things like our political views. I would argue that many of the differences of opinion that we have in this country regarding politics can be traced back to this fundamental question, what is man, that is, what is his condition? And as I was concluding this sermon, writing it, a quote from one of our founding fathers, James Madison, came to mind. He famously said in Federalist 51, he said, But what is government itself? but the greatest of all reflections on human nature. And then he said these words, If men were angels, he's thinking here of upright angels, by the way, and not fallen ones. If men were angels, no government would be necessary. If angels were to govern men, neither external nor internal controls on government would be necessary. In framing a government which is to be administered by men over men, the great difficulty lies in this. You must first enable the government to control the governed, and in the next place, oblige it to control itself. I have no intention of getting too far down the road on the topic of political theory, but I just wish to show you that our doctrine of man informs even our politics. 
and most fundamental to the formation of a political theory is the question, what is man? What is his nature like? And because we are not angels, there must be government. And because we are not governed by angels, but instead fallen men hold positions in government, the government must be limited and controlled by checks and balances, and so our founders reasoned. And so we must hold to sound doctrine, not only for the sake of our personal salvation, but see that sound doctrine also helps to produce other things, practical things, practical views of great importance to our life in this world. Two, let us not lose sight of the central issue in this passage and the central theme of Scripture, namely the glory of God through the advancement of His kingdom in all the earth. That is the central theme of this passage, the glory of God through the advancement of His kingdom in all the earth. Remember, brothers and sisters, that King Adam was to expand God's kingdom prior to the fall. He failed, and now there are two kingdoms in the world, the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God. God has established His kingdom through Christ Jesus, and now our mission is to further it. And so we pray like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This passage that we have considered is really all about the kingdom of God, the expansion of the wickedness of the kingdom of man, but God's intervention to to preserve for Himself a righteous line and to establish through Noah and later Abraham and David and ultimately through Christ His holy and glorious kingdom. Let us be sure to be a part of His kingdom with Christ as our Lord. Let us preach the gospel of this kingdom and let us pray that His kingdom come. In the days prior to the flood, the kingdom of man was flourishing to the point that it seemed as if the kingdom of God had been snuffed out entirely. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Three brothers and sisters, let us grieve with God. First, over our own sin, and after that, also over the sins of others. And may that sorrow lead us to repentance so that we might live holy before the Lord to the glory of His name. When we read that God was grieved to the heart concerning the wickedness on earth, may we adopt that same stance. May we grieve over our own sin and also the wickedness that we see around us. And may we run to Christ, and may we point to Him faithfully until the Lord takes us home and makes all things new. Let's bow together for prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank You for Your faithfulness. Were it not for Your faithfulness, we would perish, Lord. We thank You for Your faithfulness above all uh, to fulfill Your promises made even to Adam and to Eve and to establish the covenant of grace through Christ Jesus And we look upon uh, the history of the world and we see that your hand has, has directed all things and that you have brought about your purposes. Lord, help us to look at the world around us that seems to be so filled with wickedness. And may we, we trust ultimately in you that you will finish the job. God, give us courage and boldness to walk as you have called us to in this world. Give us assurance to know that you will bring your people safely home. God, we do pray that in the time between now and then, Help us to live holy lives before you to the glory of your name. It's the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord and King, that we pray and all of God's people say, Amen.